I'm Brendan Mowat and this is the Knowledge Exchange Podcast. Um, today I'm fortunate enough to be joined by someone whose qualitative research has been influential in my own sense making of clinical practice, Dr. Samantha Bunsley. Samantha is a postdoc at Melbourne University in the Division of Medicine, Dentistry and Health Sciences and has been awarded over $3.5 million in funding for her research career, spanning plenty of mixed methods work, including the exploration of patient beliefs, behaviours, clinical communication um, in conditions such as back pain and osteoarthritis, not to mention many more. So welcome, Sam. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Brendan. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're, glad you're here. Um, so Sam, I've had the privilege to read some of your work to date and some of your work has been, like I said, very helpful in my own practice and also that of many colleagues. I would, as would many others, no doubt, would like to hear about your journey so far and what has led you to be interested in your current research and, and your place at Melbourne University. Sure. So I, um, I graduated as a physio from um, Otago University in New Zealand um, quite some time ago now. And I worked for about 10 years in clinical practice, so in musculoskeletal practice. Um, and I guess in musculoskeletal, I was always really drawn to, um, I really loved treating people with more complex pain um, conditions. Um, and I suppose for me, it was always that interest in treating not just a body part that hurt, but um, helping somebody get back to doing the things they really valued that they were struggling to do. So I, I, that was what I was drawn to clinically. Um, and I guess I was always fundamentally really interested in what people believed about their bodies and about their health um, and the powerful influence that those beliefs really seem to have on people's behavioral responses and emotional responses to, to, um, to their condition that they were presenting with. Um, I guess probably one of the first clinical examples that really sticks in my mind um, was a teenage girl that came um, along to see me um, with her mum and she was experiencing sort of recurrent bouts of low back pain um, that were really quite intense. I remember them sitting in front of me and both of them crying and that fear of what the future was going to hold for this little girl. Um, the idea that, that she could end up in a wheelchair, um, that it would be sort of this lifelong disability for her. Um, and they were thinking about going down the route of further investigations and whether she would need surgery and a story probably many of us are familiar with. Um, and I think for me, it was an interesting moment because sitting and listening to them and, and giving them space to share those fears and worries um, and trying to talk a little bit around those beliefs and, and um, why, where those beliefs might have come from um, and really listening to, to where there were gaps in, in their knowledge and their understanding and um, helping to, to fill some of those gaps and also some of those maybe misunderstandings or misconceptions, these uh, a lot of the myths that we typically hear and just trying to, to gently correct some of those um, while we were also, you know, while I was providing a safe space and trying to encourage her to move and showing her how to be able to move in a way that, that was less provocative, um, um, less about drawing her attention, I guess, to those pain behaviours and all that tensing and bracing that was, um, you know, maybe contributing to some of the pain that she was presenting with. So I think for me, this story was just interesting because of the very, uh, the quick nature of how, how fast it could turn around. 
And within a couple of sessions, I had them back and, and both of them sitting in front of me and this time crying again, but crying because they were so happy and so, so thankful that, that this didn't have to be a life sentence for the little girl. This understanding that, um, that there was another, another route for her. Um, and just the, how quick she was at being able to, to, to let go of some of those patterns how that understanding was really fundamental to change that whole trajectory, I guess. And as a clinician, it was a powerful example for me really early on that there had to be more about this than just a broken body. Um, it changed too quickly to be just a broken body. So I guess that's what really sparked my interest clinically early on. And then um, sort of life circumstances, I guess, took me um, to, to Perth. Um, I'd spent lots of years overseas and, um, and was in Perth and sort of landed on Peter Sullivan's doorstep. Um, and I said, look, this is what I'm interested in. We had a coffee, we had a chat about beliefs. And an hour later I was signed up to do a PhD and we were thinking about, you know, looking at a qualitative study of how, how beliefs underlie some of these fear avoidance behaviors. Um, and that's how I really started on my, my research career. And I've moved away more clinically now um, and just really focused on the research, but always very patient informed research. So all very, um, all qualitative based, spend lots of time talking to patients still. Um, so yeah, so I feel very fortunate in the career that I've had. Sounds like a really nice mix. Um, I, I'm really interested in that because I mean, for me, um, I, I think I, I share um, some of those uh, I, I guess similar a similar journey in many ways, but mine started off very by medically, um, and and it sounds like and I mean your work um, along with Peter O'Sullivan's and Ben Darlow's and um, a huge amount of of different authors have really kind of challenged my ideas of the world and and influenced me in that way. But it sounds like you kind of very intuitively came across this in your own practice early on. Was there influences from your tertiary education that kind of led you to that or, or do you think this was just more uh you're, you're a bit of a people person and you know yeah yeah i think so it's a bit more of a um yeah I, I guess i've always been more interested in stories and you know you hear i hear qualitative researchers in the social sciences calling themselves as a collector of stories and when i think back you know maybe that's the way i've just always been i've always loved listening to the patient stories and and the patient is the expert sitting in front of you um so i guess intuitively i've always been more drawn to to that side of our physiotherapy practice um and and probably you know in new zealand what i graduated in 2000 so um I, I was probably very biomedically informed as well. Um, I don't really recall being very focused on psychosocial risk factors or having any sort of theoretical or practical training around that. Um, so probably much like, much like you, as you say. Um, and professionally, I don't really even recall. I don't think I particularly had a role model who was, who was modeling those behaviors necessarily. Um, but just something that, that probably, um, yeah, it was more intuitive. And I think also, and I know perhaps we'll talk about this a little bit later on, but some of those structural barriers, I think I was probably privileged enough to be working in practices where we had that space to be able to, and that time to be able to, to explore some of these other dimensions of, of the patient's pain experiences. Um, so perhaps there's an element of being fortunate there as well. 
Yeah, very good. Um, so I, I know Leventhal's common sense model of self-regulation has underpinned some of your qualitative work. Can you tell us what this model is and why you were specifically drawn to this model for some of your research in the past? Sure. So this um, goes back to my PhD research. So in my PhD, I was, um, I was looking at some of the beliefs underlying fear and fear avoidance behaviours in people with chronic low back pain. So to recruit people for my study, I was um, using a measure of fear that's widely used in the literature, which some people might have heard of, the Tampa scale of kinesiophobia. Um, and so what this scale measures is uh, kines the construct of kinesiophobia, which is defined as an irrational fear of movement or re-injury. Um, so I was trying to identify people that were scoring highly on this so that I could really investigate those drivers of their fear. But when I started talking to people that were all scoring very highly, what seemed to me was uh, I would be exploring some of, of, of um, perhaps someone might say that their a common response would be their, their fear around um, bending or lifting, um, those sort of things with their back. And when I was starting to explore the reasons for that, a lot of people were saying, well, um, you know, if I, if I bend over, I could pop my disc out. And if my disc pushes on my spinal cord, then I could end up a paraplegic. I could end up in a wheelchair. And this was a really common story I was hearing. Um, and then I would also have people telling me, well, you know, I could bend over, but I, I really hate that every time I bend over to pick something up, my pain goes through the roof. And, um, you know, I can't be doing that. I've got two little ones to look after. I want to be able to tuck them in at bed at night. I'm afraid that if I bend over, it's going to flare me up for the rest of the day. So there were lots of, it seemed to me, as I was talking to people, was this really a, an irrational phobia? Or was this more, it seemed to me, quite a logical thing that they were doing? If someone tells you that, or you have heard, or you believe that every time you bend over, or if you bend over, you're at risk of becoming a paraplegic. It's a kind of logical response not to bend over. No one wants to end up in a wheelchair. Um, likewise, if you think that you're going to flare your pain up for the rest of the afternoon, then it's a logical response to, to not do the thing that, that is going to flare you up if you have some control over that. So I guess for me, it was this real tension between is this a phobia that I'm apparently selecting people on, and where it seemed to me to be more of a logical response. Um, and then at the same time, I was looking at the literature and seeing things um, like some early work showing that around half of people presenting with acute low back pain to physio practice will score highly on some of these measures and will present with some form of fear avoidance behavior. So this was not a niche little part of the population or it wasn't something, um, yeah, um, it, it was more of a, a normative presentation. Um, and then, you know, we had Ben Darlow's work coming out of New Zealand showing that amongst um, people who don't have back pain, some of these beliefs around 50% of the population, up to 90% of the population, um, believing that, um, you know, the back, back pain was a sign of damage and the back would be vulnerable into the future. So a lot of these beliefs seem to be more like it was something socially or culturally endorsed almost rather than being irrational. So I guess... Um, it seemed to me that people were trying to really make sense of a pain experience, of a, of a back pain, and they really had no, the only beliefs that they could draw on to sort of inform this behavior were really unhelpful beliefs. Um, but this idea of sense-making beliefs and behaviors draw me, drew me towards Levanthal's model. Um, and this is a model that had been around for quite a long time in the literature. 
um, in the health literature, and it, um, it's called the Van Thal's Common Sense Model. And probably the easiest way to describe the model is to, to give an example, and I often give this example when I'm presenting, because um, I think it illustrates it nicely. The idea that if I'm sitting at my desk this afternoon and imagine that I suddenly feel a pain in my head. So I think um, I attach a label to that pain. I say, okay, I, I, this is a headache. Um, I think it's caused by the fact that I haven't drunk enough today. Um, so I think that I need to have a big glass of water. Um, and maybe take some paracetamol, otherwise it's going to stop me from concentrating for the rest of the afternoon. So I do that, I take a big glass of water with some paracetamol, and I feel better in about 20 minutes. So I had a pain, I attached a label to it, um, and I thought about what was causing it, what the consequences would be of this pain. Um, I thought, what action did I need to take and how long do I expect that how quickly do I think that that action is going to, to work? Um, so that would be a logical process that we're going through subconsciously each time we're experiencing a health symptom. But what we might do then is think, okay, I'm sitting here, I've experienced a pain in my head, but a couple of days ago, someone close to me was diagnosed with a brain tumor. So that could give rise to a really different set of beliefs and a really different set of behaviors. So what the model tells us is that our beliefs are highly contextual. They're influenced by not only the current symptom that we're feeling, um, but also our previous experiences of that symptom and observing the experiences of others, things that we've been told in the media um, from health professionals, for example, um, and some of those contextual stresses that might be going on in our life at the same time. So we have, each time we experience a health symptom, we draw on this core set of beliefs, which are around five dimensions. So our identity, the cause, the consequences, the timeline, um, and how controllable we think that that symptom is. And based on this set of beliefs, we make a decision about what to do about the symptom. So this is problem-solving behavior. Um, we make a logical decision. And if the outcome of that behavior is then in the direction that we thought it was going to be, or we wanted it to be, the direction of our goal, then we'll think, okay, well, that set of beliefs works. That makes sense. Um, it was effective in driving my behavior. So that just reinforces that set of beliefs for me. Um, if the outcome of that behavior wasn't in the direction of my target goal, then I would think, okay, maybe I need to update my beliefs. I adjust my beliefs and uh, try a new behavior and see if that works. So we're constantly going through this on an ongoing process. Um, what the model also tells us is that if we don't have a core set of beliefs to draw on, because um, let's say that we're trying behaviors and nothing is really working. So we're thinking, well, we don't have any helpful beliefs to draw on here because nothing is, is helping me. Then our behavior will be driven by our emotional response to the health symptom. And typically a, a health symptom which is experienced as being really intense or having intense consequences um, elicits a fear response. And so often this would be, our behavior would be driven by our emotional fear response to the symptom. So this is what the model tells us. And we've found that this is a really helpful way of understanding um, the beliefs driving behaviors in people presenting with uh, musculoskeletal pain conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, so a part of that then is, 
we as people, we're trying to make sense of, of our symptoms or our situation, our experience that we're having. And, and in, you know, the people who are coming to seek our help, are, you know, maybe stuck in the sense making process or they've been kind of going through it and th yeah. there seems to have been possibly some worry or some fear that's kind of driven them to have this behavior of seeking our help. Is, would that be a fair sort of statement to sort of make? Yes. Yep. Yep. And, absolutely. Right. And so in doing that, a part of what is probably driving that or, or maybe an assumption that we could make is, a part of our role as exercise physiologists or physiotherapists or just allied health professionals as, uh, generally is to be a part of the sense-making process for them. Absolutely. And, and so in that, we've got kind of a, a few different ways of, of going about that. Can you speak to that to some extent? Sure. Um, so absolutely, I see as fundamental as our role as, as physios is to help someone make sense of their pain. Um, and often by the some time someone is presenting to us, they might have heard all sorts of things about their pain conditions. And that, that um, experience of conflicting information is also really scary for people. Um, so that's something really important to acknowledge. But I think for every person that walks through our door as physios, um, we need to be thinking, how does this person make sense of their pain and how can I make them, help them make sense of their pain in a way that's going to give rise to helpful or adaptive behaviors? So I think even if we think of people, um, whether it's acute pain or chronic pain, I guess our role as physios is really to be... Um, is to be whether we're trying to to um, correct unhelpful pain behaviors or we're trying to get someone to adhere to self-management and um, whatever we're trying to do and we are really trying to to change someone's behavior and to be able to do that we need to be thinking about their beliefs underlying that so i think that this model as a general rule this common sense model is useful for physios with anyone sitting in front of us to be asking them what do they think is the cause of, you know, what do they think their symptom is? What do they think the cause of that symptom is? Um, going through that sort of core, exploring that core set of beliefs. And as I said at the beginning, really listening for any um, gaps in that knowledge or any conflicting information that they're not being able to make sense of and provide helping them fill those gaps with some clarity, with some evidence. Um, and also trying to yeah, listen for those misconceptions to those, those beliefs linking the, the disc bulge and the wheelchair and trying to then um, to very gently challenge those beliefs. And we can talk a little bit later about how to do that. Um, that's a really, really important role as a physio, I think, for everyone coming through the door. Yeah, okay. And so I think a part of, I mean, if I reflect on my own training and the training of many others is, you know, we talk about, all right, we need to kind of get to a bit of an idea of what a diagnosis is and a diagnosis for many people is a part of that sense-making process. But from what you're sort of suggesting here is that in a diagnosis in itself, that could be something that would lead to potentially maladaptive behaviours dependent on what their sense-making or their meaning that they applied to that diagnosis was. So how is it that we kind of, I guess, navigate that, that requirement for, you know, even some compensable schemes require, you know, a yeah. very specific anatomical diagnosis um, or, you know, people were just kind of really wanting that, um, you know, physical diagnosis. How, how do we navigate that in a way that 
is not going to necessarily, or at least reduce the likelihood that their, their behaviours are going to be, you know, adaptive, healthy behaviours that lead them to recovery rather than something that continues to maintain their pain state or, or, or their disability? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And what I would like to, I mean, in the ideal world, I think we would move away from these labels, these diagnostic labels. And I think everyone needs to be provided with an explanation for their pain. So by giving someone, if we think of our core set of beliefs, we can give someone a, a label for that identity dimension of beliefs. But what does that mean for their understanding around what caused that, around what the consequences of that are going to be, of how long that's going to last, of how well they can control that. So I think that whether we give one diagnostic label for an identity, if we don't fill in the missing link for them, they're going to fill in that missing link themselves, drawing on all sorts of unhelpful things from, from all different sources, as we know. So I think that it's fundamental that we are explaining what that means. Um, but certainly moving away from some of those diagnostic labels is really, really important because the label in itself can cause all sorts of problems that I've seen in my research. So it's in back pain, it's typically the disc bulge. Um, and when someone hears that um, and we ask people what comes to mind when they hear that, it's linking that with a wheelchair. The same with degeneration. It's this idea that it's a one-way trajectory downhill that it's going to end up in a wheelchair. Um, in, in osteoarthritis, it's that word bone on bone that then dictates everything else that happens after for that person. They disengage in exercise because they think that the bone on bone will get worse with increased um, weight bearing through the joint. So um, it's, 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 it will then, with just being told that their scan shows bone on bone for someone with knee osteoarthritis can give rise to all these sorts of unhelpful beliefs and behaviors. So unless we are explaining what that means, then I think we, that's where we seem to be getting ourselves into trouble. Patients seem to be getting themselves stuck in a really unhelpful pattern. Right. So, I mean, we've, we've spoken here a, a lot about sort of persisting conditions that have been going on for a while, um, potentially so sort of ongoing pain states. What, what do you think is essential to be carried across into the acute setting? Um, do you feel that adopting a broader biopsychosocial approach may be helpful in combating that maintenance of a of pain or disability or maladaptive behaviors beyond an acute time time frame time setting yeah yeah so again sort of i guess what i was sort of saying before too is that we well we know that beliefs play a really important role in that transition from acute pain to to chronic pain so and and we need to remember that beliefs are really are really highly modifiable so this is a really good focus for us to be having and anyone that walks through the door is thinking in the back of our minds um, how is this person making sense of their pain how can I make sure that they're making sense of their pain in a way that might help them stop going down that unhelpful trajectory so I think for all of us we need to be thinking about that and as I say whether it's promoting physical activity whether it's correcting unhelpful behaviors movement patterns um, or encouraging adherence to self-management in any from that whole spectrum of physio, we need to be thinking of how can we make sure that we encourage that behaviour change by thinking of their beliefs. Right. So it would be fair to say then that no matter what the problem was, it would be all biopsychosocial. Like you cannot be separating these three things apart. It's not going, oh, this is, this is more of a psychosocial issue or this is more of a biomechanical or biological issue. It is literally considering all of those factors all the time when we're 
yeah. dealing with people. As being a fundamental part included in every subjective assessment would be understanding what do you think is causing this and going through just that little checklist so that you've got an understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And so how do you, you go about doing this in, in a, I know you're not sort of practicing so much as a, as a physiotherapist anymore, but you know, a part of your research has obviously been conducting interviews and so on. And you, you yeah. very, uh, have a huge amount of experience to draw upon here. How is it that you go about exploring these beliefs with somebody? Yeah. So, um, and again, as you, as you point out, I'm moving away from a lot of clinical work now, but still have that connection with patients. And I work really closely with um, Peter Sullivan still as well, and, and JP Kenyera as well, um, who really are, are um, incredibly good at doing this in clinical practice. Um, so really including, uh, having a good understanding of how every patient walking through the door makes sense of their pain is something that you can explore in that um, clinical interview. So just directly questioning around some of these key core beliefs, how that's influencing um, what sort of you know, behaviors and why they're engaging in those behaviors. Um, drawing on a model like the common sense model can be really, really helpful for clinicians as almost a checklist as during that, that subjective assessment, I think. But what is really important to acknowledge is that not everybody, um, we can also hold beliefs that, that are more implicit. So while we might explicitly be able to get somebody to tell us their explicit beliefs, they can communicate that through questioning. Sometimes people aren't even aware of some of these beliefs that they're hold and they're only perhaps going to come to light um, during the, the more of a behavioral assessment, for example. Um, so this is where it's really important to be looking at um, or thinking about in that subjective, uh, in, the, in the interview, what are the things this person is worried about or can't do or are particularly provocative, and then um, taking them through those movements. Um, and while they are doing those movements, would be looking for um, any of those, those, just closely watching for any of the, those unhelpful movements, any of the pain behaviors that we might be picking up, the wincing or the bracing or the hand, or the, the holding, um, all those sorts of things. And that's where we have a, an opportunity to really tap into some of those implicit beliefs. To, so to be questioning them about why they might be doing those, because often people aren't even aware that they are. Um, and using video recordings of those can also be helpful, um, of those sort of movements so that somebody can see themselves doing it. They might not be able to, to feel themselves doing it. And sometimes these patterns have been going on for such a long time. Um, so. So that behavioural assessment really has, is part of the, the, the interview in that sense of really getting a, an idea of what this person is believing, what they're feeling, how they're responding to their pain. Um, and, and through behaviour, behaviour and movement go really, beliefs and behaviour really are inextricably linked, I guess. We'll have some people that when we're trying to address their beliefs, we can sit down and, and talk them through it and um, provide with evidence and explanations. And that can then encourage them to do the things that they might be afraid of, to be able to relax when they bend in a way that doesn't cause them pain, that's not provocative. And for some people, that experience of doing that um, will then, if they didn't experience an increase in pain, um, then that can help them understand that, well, I didn't have increased in pain, therefore I didn't cause more damage to my back when I did that. So that can be a helpful thing for me to do. I don't need to be afraid of that. I can do this without pain. So we've 
We can address those beliefs to encourage them to move. But for some people, we might need to show them how to move first. And for them, that to be the opportunity once they're moving to be able to disconfirm some of those beliefs. So really, there's not one way or the other way that belief change and behavior change are really hand in hand. So this is a really important thing to be exploring, I would say, during the clinical assessment. And there are really nice examples. Um, you know, Peter Sullivan has some nice videos around how to do that, um, that are in online resources that can, can model some of those um, right. things in practice. So we can use sort of behaviours to influence someone's priors in terms of their not their own knowledge and update and, and so on, but we could also be using education strategies and so on for them to kind of update and then hopefully have that influence their behaviours. It's like you said, they're kind Absolutely. of... Absolutely. So it's bi-directional. Yeah. Right. And so what might dictate whether or not you decided to go with an individual sitting in front of you to go down more of a, you know, an education strategy or go down more of a let's do some behavioral experiments and sort of let them validate or invalidate their own you know belief system themselves if you will sure i think we'd always be doing both so for every person you'd be you'd be trying to incorporate aspects of both and one will work better than the other and some you might just need to focus on those give a lot more time to the behaviors first of all and um, if you give the example you know before of the teenage girl that sat in front of me way back then that education and reassurance was enough to then help her get moving so that's something that emerges usually during the session um, but with everybody you would need to be combining both that behavioral experimentation is really fundamental it's, and that's where I see the difference um, perhaps to, to just delivering information and education resources, that that goes so far to some extent. But I think that we really need, and this is our real niche as physios too, is to be able to draw on our understanding of behaviour to combine the two is much more powerful. I think to have sustained belief in behaviour change, it needs to be quite experience, an experiential process. Yeah, um, which it just made me kind of think of, I know Hope and Lee did a secondary analysis of um, a pain education study and looked at um, whether or not someone, whether or not someone actually implicitly took on um, the, the pain education. So had meaning that it, it was applicable to them. It was very specific to them and, and it made sense to their situation and uh, compared to those who didn't and it seemed that those who uh, did take it on seemed to have a, a greater reduction in pain um, which kind of maybe makes yeah, sense, makes a lot in, of sense. Um, in this sort of context even though that is a secondary analysis that we can't sort of you know look too too hard into but that would possibly be an underpinning sure and the other thing to remember I think is that beliefs are really they can be paradoxical too we can hold lots of different beliefs at the same time that appear really contradictory. Um, so it's really something that when we're just being told information, yes, we can store all that, but, but it's that action of we need to be disconfirming some of those unhelpful beliefs that I think is really important too, because they might still be fundamentally there and we are holding more of a, a paradoxical set of beliefs that we, we need to work on challenging them at the same time as giving that helpful information. So in that sense, I mean, I mean, a lot of what I'm hearing from you right now is kind of you know, lots of strategies of motivational interviewing um, and that sort of thing. Is that sort of what underpins the way that you approach these situations and highlight maybe inconsistencies in their belief system and have them, 
evaluate that them, themselves? Absolutely. That's spot on. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. Um, uh, we talked a little bit about implicit beliefs of, of, of the individual, um, but I'm also really interested, um, having read some of JP Canero's recent stuff on the implicit beliefs of practitioners. Yeah. Um, now, it seems as though that we can explicitly say one thing as a practitioner and believe that, but then um, implicitly actually believe something different to that. And, and that may be something that is influential in how we maybe communicate or uh, navigate a clinical consultation. Is that something you've had sort of much experience with or explored much yourself? Yeah, and that, that's great. Um, JP's work is wonderful in that space. I, I think that we see, from, in my experience of talking to clinicians um, and also to patients, we see um, we still have a problem with explicit beliefs as well. Um, so when you know we look at um, you know the systematic review we did a little while ago, looking at the stigmatization of of, of patients by physios, um, that we still do have an aspect of this idea that we've either got a broken body or a broken mind. Um, and so we know that the pain research has really moved on from that, that we can have pain without nociception, without injury. Um, but there are still beliefs out there amongst clinicians broadly that, um, that our pain experience is directly linked to the extent of, of tissue changes. Um, those very strong biomedical beliefs. So we know that they still exist and that that message is still being communicated to patients. Um, and I th those, as a society, those beliefs are, are really strong. We, we grow up knowing that, um, that pain is, is, we grow up understanding that pain is important to our, to our well-being, to our, to our survival, that it's a sign of threat, that if we put our hand on that hot plate, that's going to, to, to be damaging for us. Um, that if we sprain our ankle, we need to rest it, um, or that pain could be the sign of something unseen, an unseen tumour, or we have this instinctive understanding of what pain means. Um, and going right back, you know, so 350 years, if we look at, go back to Descartes, who first explained this model, this biomedical model of, of pain being either somatic in origin or psychogenic in origin, we've really continued that really... Um, um, dualistic way of thinking has really continued over 350 years. We haven't really changed. So all that, those advances in, in neuroscience, our advances in, in the understanding of pain haven't really trickled down to, to mainstream discourse in the public, but neither within a clinical sort of setting um, that we're still struggling to, to, to get there. So when I speak with patients, I, I hear a lot of people saying, you know, well, the doctor told me that I shouldn't bend, that that could, you know, I could end up in a wheelchair. Um, and part of this, when I'm speaking to patients, I think, um, sometimes I'm amazed and I think, really, could someone really have said some of these things? Um, I think we have a problem sometimes with misinterpretation in that clinical setting. So sometimes we might hear a word and that um, is, patients are often Googling and they're very familiar with some of this jargon, but maybe using it in the wrong context. So sometimes some of the words from the clinician is being misunderstood. Um, but certainly from some of our video camera work that we're doing too, of, video, of recording some clinical consultations, we know some of this is actually being perhaps said in some instances as well. This is all with consent. It's not hidden cameras, but <laughs> <laughs> obviously um, full ethics approval. Um, so, so those explicit um, um, 
messages that are coming through from clinicians are still strong. But certainly the implicit messaging is something that we need to, to look at as well. Um, part of this, um, when we're speaking again to, to clinicians, is the idea that we, we understand um, the neuroscience and, and, and developments in, 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 um, in research as far as pain, but we don't know how to put that into practice. So this is where I think sometimes we fall back into the patterns that are familiar to us. Um, and this is something that we need to do a lot more work and is really skilling, well, how do I put this into action? And I think that's what's really missing a lot for clinicians. I understand what I'm supposed to do, but I don't know how to do that, how to put it into practice. Uh, and I see really, really wonderful here as some of the work with JP and, and with Pete, modeling those behaviors. But I think that through modeling, we can really come a long way as clinicians, seeing somebody else do that and, and um, using that as a, as a base for us to move forward. So I see that as two problems. One is the knowledge and one is the skills to be able to put them into practice. Um, and I mean, that's, um, you did a paper um, or you were, you were one of the co-authors on a paper with Aoife Sinner. I think that's how you say her last name. Um, her, her first name's a challenge in itself. It is. Um, and that explored, and I think you kind of referred to this just before as well, that explored yeah. physiotherapist attitudes towards the importance and their own ability to explore um, and manage psychosocial factors in people with low back pain. Yeah. Um, what, what were the overarching things that you've, you found in that paper? What was sort of, I guess, surprising to you? Or Yeah, so the two, the two main things were, were that idea that physios were still stigmatising some of those people that present with um, those psychosocial risk factors for persistent pain. Um, everyone presents with psychosocial factors, but those ones that are presenting with some of the more complicated barriers, I guess, to recovery. Um, and, and the labelling of sort of those extravagant pain people. Um, and this is concerning because a lot of the work that I've done, obviously, with, with patients, patients are really acutely aware of being labelled as one of those extravagant people um, and having the legitimacy of their pain being questioned is a huge thing for patients. So certainly the fact that um, there was an element of physios explicitly saying this um, is really concerning. Um, and, and this paper was published a little while ago, but I think there is still perhaps amongst the clinical community some evidence that we still have that broken body or broken mind mentality. Um, and the second one was this idea that physios felt that perhaps um, addressing some of these factors was outside of their scope of practice um, or outside of their skill base. So things like, um, you know, why would I identify fear of movement if I don't know what to do about it? Um, also the idea that they were concerned about that conversation going wrong in the clinical setting, that the patient then might think that they think it's in their mind and then the patient disengages. And so some of those difficulties of how to deliver this, um, this message, how to address some of these factors. Um, so that was, that's where the skill base comes into it, I guess. Um, as I see as being really important that we need to fill that skills gap. Um, so they were the two key themes that came out of that study. And do you think, so with that, um, in, in the last few years with your observation of, of various institutes um, around the world, are, are we better filling those gaps in terms of our tertiary education curriculums and so on? Or do we have a, a ways to go with this? I think we still have a way to go with this. Um, certainly now I'm doing a lot more work in um, at the University of Melbourne, I'm working closely with orthopedic surgeons 
Um, and that's been a really interesting um, group of people to work with. And we are really trying to, to, to challenge that existing um, paradigm. Um, but there's a lot of work to go, I think. Um, certainly, when it sort of reminds me, and it, maybe it's a bit of a, a, a left turn, but we've done some work looking with orthopedic patients, um, looking at their whole sort of trajectory from the moment that they identify that they've got a symptom um, all the way through to presenting for surgery and trying to understand what that journey looked like. And certainly there seem to be quite a lot of, um, along the way, we see real sort of structural barriers that they've encountered that no one has really um, often sat down and explained what's happening and help them make sense of their, their condition for sometimes, you know, a very, very long period of time, maybe 20, 30 years of going to see the GP for a five, 10 minute consultation of seeing the surgeon, you know, from time to time for a quick 10 minute consultation. And really this idea that they're just in the context of osteoarthritis biding their time until they're old enough to have surgery. So there are all sorts of, I think, structural barriers of these five, 10 minute quick appointments where, um, Perhaps in the in, there's been missed opportunity really for someone to sit down and really explain pain well, and this is where I think physio can play a really important role. That we're privileged to have a bit more time to be able to sit with somebody, um, to be able to give more of a sort of comprehensive care um, to someone, and there are still some barriers within a physio setting to do that. But I think that if we can get the patients to come, we've got a really important role to play here. Um, often it's 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 difficult to when I in a lot of the work I've done, um, someone presenting to a GP with osteoarthritis are far more likely to get referred to surgery than they are to, to non-surgical care, to a physio. And those numbers are really, really quite strikingly different. Um, so we need to do a lot more work of almost marketing ourselves in a way. We, we have a real role to play here to help somebody um, in a, in a much more comprehensive way than we could do in a five or 10 minute consultation in some of these other settings. Um, that's a bit left of field, sorry, but I, I do think that as physios, we've got a lot more work to do in getting our message out there of, of the potential role that we can play in society. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you kind of talked about sort of these barriers that even we have um, as, as practitioners. And I know a lot of practitioners are, are, are possibly sitting there right now going, hey, I've got 20, 30 minutes, yeah. you know, in a consult. And what we're talking about here is exploring sort of, you know, five belief constructs and then looking at behaviours and, you know, you know it, it's far more in depth than our traditional biomedical assessments. What you know, what are your thoughts on that? Do we need to be, you know, finding ways to make our businesses work within, you know, a larger, you know, time frame appointment? Or are we able to deliver these, you know, multiple sessions or, you know, within 20 minutes, half an hour? Yeah, I'm probably not the best person, best place to, to, to comment on that now that I've moved away from clinical practice. I know there would be people much better placed to to, to comment on that. But I, you know, I do maintain that asking someone how they make sense of pain doesn't have to take a long time, but it has to be fundamental for everyone walking through the door. I would maintain that. Um, but certainly having the, the time and space to explore these, um, to explore some of the underlying drivers of these beliefs and these behaviors 
is really important to be able to have the space and time to do that and also to be able to build the trust and rapport with that person to be able to feel comfortable to tell to divulge some of that information too so certainly there are some some structural barriers there it's interesting now that we are um, having to transition to telehealth a lot of people during this COVID-19 crisis um, that's going to be an interesting time too I don't know how structurally that works if there's more scope in the in the consultation but certainly it is going to have to be more communication based. That's going to be an interesting time um, and maybe an opportunity to explore this in a bit more detail. Yeah, I was going to absolutely say that <laughs> from everything you've, we've sort of spoken about today is possibly the most opportune time to be kind of going, how do we explore this? How do we dive into this more and develop these skills um, around exploring the, these fundamentals um, that, that may really influence uh, be influential in someone's recovery or, or in their journey. Um, so for those people who do feel like they are maybe going, I, I don't know where to go from here. I don't know how to fill these gaps um, in my own knowledge. What, what, are, what are some of the resources that you're aware of or what would you recommend to these individuals? Yeah, we've got some excellent resources that um, the Curtin are developing um, and that have developed online. And maybe we can put a link to some of those. I don't know if yeah, you, you're able to do that. Um, but those are really helpful resources um, to try to get a modelled with, um, with a patient coming in and just um, giving some sort of um, some prompts or some script around how that might play out in a clinical consultation. And I think that's really helpful to model some of those behaviours. Um, I think it's really important just to, to go back to those interactional listening skills and really um, listening to our patients and, and thinking of yourselves, again, as collectors of stories. I guess as physios, we are collecting experiences along the way in our clinical reasoning where we've got this person in front of us. That reminds us of this person that I saw then. And, and it's trying to find those patterns in people's experiences. But remembering that, that there are stories there that we can we need to be really tapping into the stories too of these patients. So listening to their stories, asking a patient to tell me a story, I think is a really powerful, very, very um, easy thing for us to do in the first instance. Um, listening skills and then yet yeah, how we might fill some of those gaps. I think that's where some of these other resources are really valuable. There's still lots of work we need to go. One of the key, one of the key areas that I think we need to do a lot more work is around some of that misinterpretation that goes on in the clinical consultation. So, um, you know, I've done some research showing uh, what sort of words not to use in the clinical consultation. Some of those words that are misunderstood and, and lead to all sorts of unhelpful beliefs and behaviors. Um, but then I often get asked, well, what can I say? What would be more helpful? And I think that's where we need to do a lot more work, to a lot more understanding of what are some of those implicit interpretations that are happening during the clinical consultation um, and what might be better ways of doing that. And working really closely with patients to develop some of, of that understanding is fundamental. So um, any sort of, I think, resources really need to have that input from the patient, some sort of consumer um, um, representation there of how is this going to be perceived by patients and and bringing that perspective into the research a lot more I think is is really really important 
Yeah, um, we, we can absolutely add um, into the show notes some of these um, resources as well. So I'll make sure that that's there um, as well for listeners. And I think for okay. me, one of one of your papers that we've already spoken about a little bit around low back pain and the common sense model, you have like some really nice tables in that that kind of link it back to Johan Flayen's uh, and Steve Linton's fear avoidance model, but yeah. also ways that you can, or, or some example questions specific to low back pain, but very easy to sort of switch out different um, body yep. areas yep. Um, about how to explore those different constructs belief constructs um, and, and example questions of that and I think that's quite nice along with sort of motivational interviewing techniques to kind of you know start that conversation absolutely and increasingly we're trying to to incorporate that in our research papers sort of those tables at the end of showing of alternative ways that might be more helpful of of delivering a message or exploring um, an aspect of a person's pain experience. So, um, so hopefully those are helpful for clinicians and we might be able to put some of those resources up as well. Excellent. That would be great. I think that'd be really, really helpful. Um, I know it's been you know very helpful for me as well. Um, so Sam, just to sort of finish off um, for those listening, um, at home is there any way for them to find out more about you are you a prolific twitter user are you all about the snapchat are you um i am entirely entirely hopeless at such things so so no i'm not a big social media user much to um everyone's horror a little bit i think as a researcher probably i do need to at some point jump on that bandwagon. So no, it's not a prolific social media user, but certainly my webpage at the University of Melbourne has a link to all my most recent papers um, and you can find out more information there. And certainly anyone can email me if they've got any further questions or any comments that they would like to send through to me. I'm always really interested in keeping that, that clinician perspective and hearing clinician stories, especially now that I'm a little bit outside of the clinical um, hands-on world. So, um, yeah, my email is samantha.bunsley at unimel.edu.au. Um, I'd love to hear from anyone. Excellent. Samantha, thank you so much for joining us today. I could speak to you for hours. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating. So I, I appreciate your time and uh, look forward to catching up sometime in the future. Thanks, Brendan. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to share our work. Yeah, you're welcome.